Dr. E. Michael Jones is the editor of Culture Wars magazine and the author of numerous books, including Libido Dominandi, Sexual Liberation and Political Control, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit and Its Impact on World History, Baron Metal, and the forthcoming Logos of History and the History of Logos. Dr. Jones, thank you so much for coming back on Saturday Night Trad. You're welcome. Uh, tonight, we agreed to talk a little bit about the relationship between Christianity and the alt-right and the apparent conflict between Christianity and uh, white nationalism. Now, I remember about 10 years ago when your book, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, came out. It seemed like on YouTube there were a number of uh, right-wing groups that attempted to contact you and ask you to come on their show. Um, could you describe a little bit why uh, initially the far right attempted to court you? Uh, first, first of all, it wasn't around that time. Okay. What happened around that time uh, was the uh, Sam Francis Memorial. Okay. It was right around the time that I uh, I was writing the book. I was close to uh, completing it, and uh, Sam Francis died, and then there was a memorial service for him. And at that point, I um, gave this speech uh, that uh, was unbelievably controversial because the room was full of white guys. Uh, and Sam Francis uh, was a white guy. Uh, he started off being a conservative, uh, and then he got expelled from the synagogue of conservatism by William F. Buckley after the ADL issued a fatwa on him. And at that point, he became a white guy. Now, he started off uh, writing about James Burnham and the managerial elite. Uh, Burnham was a, a former communist who ended up at National Review. And he dragged a lot of his uh, original, I think, Marxism with him into National Review uh, in terms of analyzing what he saw was a class conflict in the United States between the, the new class, the managerial elite, and the old bourgeois elite. Uh, so Sam, uh, uh, this, this talk I gave, I tried to step back and take into account what I was doing in the Jewish revolutionary spirit, which was basically re reformulating categories based on different criteria. And the main transformation that took place at that point was looking at the Jews as a religious entity. This is a religious issue. The Jewish issue is a theological issue because the Jews had rejected Logos. And when they rejected Logos, they became revolutionaries. And that was the problem here, that the Jewish revolutionary spirit had a, a disrupting effect throughout human history for the past 2000 years. So I got there uh, and I remember being in Washington. And this is toward the end of Sam's life. And at this point, he had ceased being a conservative and he was a white guy now. And uh, so he invited Mr. Tyndall, the guy who founded the British Front, British Front, in uh, from England, to talk. And uh, Mr. Tyndall was talking about the glories of being a white guy, and the most glorious moment was Elizabethan England. And my friends Jerry Bruin and I looked at each other at that point, uh, thinking, "Well, wasn't that the time when you could get drawn and quartered for saying mass? Was this a glorious time for Catholics in England?" So after the uh, talk was over during the question period, my friend Jerry said to Mr. Tyndall, are the Irish white? 
And Tyndall got this disgusted look on his face. And he said, of course, the Irish are white. My mother's Irish. And at this point, Sam Francis turned to him and he said, are Jews white? And at this point, uh, Mr. Tyndall kind of stared off, got that look on his face. And he said, I don't know. I'll get back to you on that. Now, I began my talk at the San Francis Memorial by telling that story. And I said, are, are Jews white? And I said, I'd like to answer that question. And then I told him about the Jewish revolutionary spirit. And I said, basically, there is no such thing as white. Sam and I belong to two different ethnic groups. He's a white Protestant. I'm a Northern Catholic. He's a Southern Protestant. I'm a Northern Catholic. And the, eth the, uh, the uh, political uh, configuration in the United States of America is based on three separate ethnic groups, Protestant, Catholic, and Jew, uh, uh, which are all the base bases for three different religions. And the man who had expounded that was uh, most popularly was uh, Will Herberg, who wrote a book on it in 1954. And this was my attempt to realign this whole thing. And I said, basically, okay, even though we come from different ethnic groups, Sam and I, or Sam's group and my group, we can unite in, in common cause against the revolutionary Jew. Well, you can't believe the uproar that this talk caused. I mean, people were screaming. Taki was there. Taki said, we're all going to be arrested. The, the, the uh, Peter Brimelow was there. Uh, he went up to the microphone afterwards and he said, I love Elizabethan England. And I said, yeah, sure you do, because I would have been drawn and quartered there. Uh, and then uh, people were running. I forget people whose name I don't remember rushed up to uh, C-SPAN. Don't turn off the cameras. Turn off the light. This is terrible. Uh, and uh, then Paul Gottfried was there. I, I had sent Paul Gottfried an advanced copy of this speech. It was Paul Gottfried. In, in Tom Fleming's living room that told me that he was sick of these the Goyim not standing up to the Jews. So why don't you do something about it? So I wrote the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. So I sent him an advanced copy. He comes up to me afterwards and he says, I can't believe you gave that talk. I said, Paul, I sent you the talk. What did you think I was going to do? Of course I gave that talk. So anyway, the whole thing, just a huge explosion. Uh, everyone was afraid that they were going to have their picture taken with me and that they would lose their jobs because they breathed the air in the same room in which I was uh, present. It was terrible. And I was completely dropped by the conservative movement at that point. I'm talking about the paleo-conservative movement at that point. Yes. Tom Fleming, who was not there, who in many ways should have been there, who probably should have given the speech because he knew Sam a lot better than I did. Uh, he uh, cut me off expelled me from the synagogue of paleoconservatism, said I was a, 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 a holy fool and a, like a child with a gun. That's the way he talked about me. But what happened over this period of time is that I think I was vindicated. Okay, because what happened between that time? Uh, well, most recently, uh, the book came out that Sam Francis never published. It's called Leviathan and His Enemies. That book just came out. It was in manuscript form, completed around 1995, and Sam died around 10 years later, and it was never published. And it was his examination of the managerial elite. Now, it's not it's not a particularly good book, and it's kind of obsolete or uh, not really pertinent because Sam really didn't describe his uh, metamorphosis into a white guy. But 
that transformation took place after his death. And so if you look at the introduction to this book, it turns out that Richard Spencer is one of the people who uh, made this possible. Well, guess where Richard Spencer showed up? He showed up as the leader of the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. So here is Sam Francis getting, he, Sam Francis had this vision of the middle American radicals, uh, a group that Hillary Clinton called the deplorables, uh, the people who voted for Donald Trump, Richard Nixon, Pat Buchanan, people like that, George Wallace, and uniting in a revolutionary movement. Well, this was one of Sam's pipe dreams, okay? But it, it, it almost came to fruition uh, in Charlottesville. So what happened in Charlottesville? The white boys all got together. They, they were convinced that they were protected by the Constitution of the United States, which guaranteed them the right of free speech and the right to, the assemb uh, to assemble. And they marched off to Charlottesville and right into a trap that was prepared for them by Sam Francis and to a lesser extent, Paul Godfrey. So Sam Francis got what he uh, prayed for, uh, but unfortunately it didn't turn out the way he expected. So Sam Francis, and Richard Spencer, Sam Francis posthumously, but Richard Spencer actually, stood there in Charlottesville and basically, and this is a metaphor, okay, but sort of handed out spears to the white guys and said, see that machine gun there? I want you to charge that machine gun waving your spear. And when you do it, make sure you shout really loud and make scary faces and you will uh, defeat that machine gun. Well, they charged and they got mowed down by the, the metaphor if the machine gun was the legal system, which then turned on them and absolutely destroyed them. So what is the moral of this story? The moral of this story is you should have listened to E. Michael Jones back then, because if you had listened to me, you wouldn't have made a fool out of yourself by assembling as white guys. Because white guy, when you assemble as a white guy under that universal or that category, you are putting a weapon into the hands of your enemies and you will be destroyed, which is exactly what happened. So to bring this full circle, the really controversial moment back at the San Francisco Memorial was not me talking about the revolutionary Jew. The really controversial moment was came when I announced in the middle of this thing that Sam Francis converted to Catholicism on his deathbed. Yes. I mean, this out, outraged everyone. The white guys were furious. <laughs> My wife was sitting next to Sam Dixon and had to wield her umbrella at him, threaten him with her umbrella because he was ready to charge the stage and lynch me. Now, Sam uh, was decent enough to call me up later and say, after he calmed down, he realized what I was saying which is that we belong to two different ethnic groups, but we can collaborate against the revolutionary Jew. He calmed down, he saw, understood what I was saying, and he kind of agreed with what I'm saying. But then he was ready to lynch me, as I said. Uh, so what we're seeing here is more, in more than one sense of the word, the fulfillment of this prophecy. And basically what happened here is you have all these white guys defeated in Charlottesville who are now completely demoralized. And now what you see here is large-scale conversions among the alt-right crowd to Catholicism. Yes. 
Yes. Now, maybe large scale is the wrong word, but in some sense, we're hearing more and more about conversions to Catholicism because these people are starting to realize after this debacle that race is not going to get you anywhere in this world. It's a fiction. And it's not only a fiction, it's a, it's a trap that's set by your enemies. Dr. Jones, if I could play devil's advocate for a second or counter-signal counter as people say on the internet today. Um, when people apply for jobs and for positions in the university, uh, they have to check off their ethnicity. And so there's a certain sense in which the bureaucracy, uh, as well as what we could call the culture industry, uh, clearly presents this idea of whiteness to us, that they, they know very clearly absolutely. that- you are, you are absolutely right. All you have to watch is TV commercials and you realize that there is a war being waged against white people. Uh, you're absolutely right. I'm saying this is precisely the point. This is the war, the, the war, the weapon here is to convince you that you're white. Because when they do that, you walk right into their trap. That's, that's precisely what's going on here. Now to, to take it back to, let's take it back to um, um, Herberg's book, Protestant Catholic Jew. Shortly after it came out, a couple years after it came out, everyone was saying, well, religion's probably not the basis of ethnicity in America. Race is much more important. Now, Herberg's book came out in 1954, and that's exactly the same year that Brown versus School Board uh, was handed down by the Supreme Court. The message of Brown versus School Board is basically you can't have segregation according to race. So they created the category of race. They promoted it importance. And over this period of time, you had more and more people identifying with race and uh, uh, rather than religion as the source of their ethnicity, okay? Uh, at the same time, you had a process of secularization that's going on here. So the people are being more and more removed from their religious background, their religious roots. Sam Francis is a classic example of this. He was a Southern Protestant, but by the time he was an adult, he had abandoned all religion. He became, and that's part of, part of I'm saying, part of the problem. Now, if we go back to Will Herberg, uh, what does he say about this? He says, if you don't have religious identity in America, you don't have an identity. You're nobody. You don't exist. Now, that's one way of putting it. The other way of putting it is, if they constrain, if, if the oligarchs constrain real identity through secularization, or uh, if they poison it with sexual liberation, uh, you will, this will create a vacuum. And as we all know, nature abhors a vacuum. So what fills the vacuum? Well, identity politics. This is the uh, thesis of Mary Eberstadt's new book, uh, Primal Screams. Uh, she's claiming that the sexual revolution destroyed the family, when you destroy the family, you destroy identity. When you destroy identity, you create a vacuum. And then the government, uh, which is always the arsonist and the fire department all wrapped up in one, comes along with pseudo identities and uh, fills the gap. So the first pseudo identity was black. Okay, uh, Herberg would not say that's a pseudo identity. He felt that that was a real identity, but he felt that the blacks were completely out of the mainstream of American life, like the Chinese. And so therefore they didn't have a real identity, but okay, you give this identity and this identity, the black identity 
then creates in Hegelian fashion, the white identity. And so you see uh, Jesse Jackson, this is in Eberstadt's book, but Jesse Jackson, uh, Western culture's gotta go in Stanford, 1987, leads directly to Charlottesville, uh, 2000, uh, whatever, what was it, 17, 2017. Yes. That's, that's the dynamic that we're talking about. And I hope that answered your question. Yes, it does. I'm gonna, but I'm gonna uh, counter single signal you again and play devil's advocate again um, that many of these people on the alt right uh, in white nationalism they claim to be very knowledgeable of human genetics and the human genome project, and they argue that we can clearly see that there are such things as races if we look at our genetics. Absolutely. What you what do you mean by race, though? Now, Theodore Roosevelt would say that we, he talked about the Teutonic race and the, the Celtic race and things like that. Okay, so he clear race clearly then meant something different than it does now. Now it has taken on uh, certain characteristics which have no connection whatsoever with behavior, none whatsoever. I, you, there are a couple of interviews that you did, one with um, Richard Spencer, Jim Goad, and right. Mark Brahman, uh, another one with um, Mark Collett, and there were a few other people on the Patriotic uh, Weekly Review. Um, there were a couple points in which those um, debate or those interviews got a little bit heated. What, why do you think there is this hostility to Christianity among certain sections of the alt-right? Because of the lives they're leading. Uh, Jim Goad is the classic example. Jim Goad is a libertine. He's got a sexual life that would make uh, a number of X-rated movies and is uh, kind of proud of it. He's got, he's taking on that, what is that, that Hunter Thompson persona? He wants to be a writer. Uh, Jim and I went to Temple University together. We both grew up in Philadelphia and he headed in one direction and I headed in the other. So to, and the short answer to your question is uh, because uh, some people in this world want to live lives of darkness. They want to live, they want to screw as many uh, people as possible in one way or another. And they find that uh, that's incompatible with Christianity, which it is. And so they choose not to become Christians. That's the simple answer to your question. On a related preferred, St. John said they preferred the darkness to the light. Yes, yes. The, um, on a related note, uh, some people argue on the internet that we should put um, the differences between Christian and pagan behind us and work on politics together. Uh, do you think it's possible in looking at it from a historical perspective and a theological perspective for uh, a revanched um, Germanic paganism to coexist with Christianity? No. <laughs> paganism is an obsolete religion. I mean, this is in effect the gist of my book on Logos. This book is a history of Logos from the beginning, the absolute beginning of everything. That's what the first chapter is about. And then the next chapter is about the beginning of the human race. And then the next chapter is about the beginning of civilization and so on and so forth. Over the course of this period of time, uh, we realize that God has certain characteristics. Now to go back to the be close to the beginning when it comes to being human being, every primitive culture has a word for God. Every primitive culture believes that there's a God. And even more specifically, they feel that God is a father and that God lives in heaven. They know this. We all know this. 
uh, and then at that point, then the path begins to diverge. Okay, if God is a father, well, he must have a beard, right? And if he's got a beard, he's probably got a wife. And, and maybe his wife's name is, and you go down, that's known as mythology. Okay, and mythology reached its culmination in Western in the Western world with uh, uh, Homer, who has the Iliad, and it turns out that the gods are just about as bad as the human beings. They're quarreling in heaven the same way the human beings are quarreling on earth. Now, Socrates was scandalized by this because he knew that, that that was incompatible with being God. And with Socrates, you have a revolution here of saying, well, wait a minute. If this is true, uh, if the poets are talking this way about gods, we should ban poetry because it's a bad thing because it gives people a ba bad example. and They start acting like gods, which means they're, you know, they're screwing each other and killing and so on and so forth. So what we're talking about in human history is the evolution of this notion of, of God. Now, I just did a review of a movie called Midsummer, uh, which appeared this summer about the revival of Swedish paganism. Uh, Swedish paganism, like all paganism, is a horrible, is horrible religion. The, you know, it invariably involves human sacrifice. Okay, well, why is that? Well, because all polytheism is a degenerate form of religion. First of all, no, you can't have many gods. That's completely incoherent, but they didn't know that. But anyway, why do we have polytheism? Well, uh, Wilhelm Schmidt, who is the Dean of Catholic Anthropology, uh, said it's basically because uh, you know that God is good and you know if you pray to him, uh, he will probably grant your prayers, but only if you ask for something that's good. Well, what about the times when you'd like to sleep with your neighbor's wife? Well, you, are you going to pray to God for that? Well, no, but if you pray to some other being, uh, maybe he'll grant your wish. And this is the beginning of polytheism because polytheism is based on the fact that there are demons out there. They're not gods, they're demons. And they, they like it when you say things like that and say have powers to do things and maybe it'll work out. And so given that fact, you will end up with Mexico under the Aztecs, which is the kind of the, the, the complete fruition of this ugly aspect of human nature, beginning with polytheism and ending with human sacrifice. And something, it's obsolete. We knew it's obsolete, but they had complete control over political power in Mexico at that time. And the only way to deal with them was with military force, which is what Cortez did. Uh, to the gratitude of all of the ethnic groups in Mexico who have been subjugated by the Aztecs and got marched up pyramids and had their hearts cut out. That's the same uh, Thor, whoever it is, they're all in the same position. They are obsolete and no, no one in his right mind could ever go back to worshiping Thor. Now, if, if you think you're doing that, well, God bless you, but uh, you're going... If you want my honest opinion, I suspect that the main reason you're interested in Thor is because you don't like the sexual morality of Christianity. One of the uh, arguments given by these people like uh, Mark Brahman and others on the Internet is that um, Christianity is a trick of the Jews. Uh, some people say that Christianity was a trick of the Romans. I don't really get that one. But the... Um, but the argument is that this is just a trick to subdue us. And once we get back to 
the old strong gods, we will flourish again. Well, good luck, fellas. I mean, Augustine dealt with this in the city of God. The Romans uh, at the time of the barbaric invasion, the Germanic invasion, were saying, well, it's because we stopped worshiping the old gods. If we get away from this weak, effeminate Christian God, we will be okay. Well, it didn't work out, sorry. The causes were not Christianity. The causes were your effeminacy, uh, you Romans. Uh, but uh, what are these? The second issue here is a Jewish. This is a Jewish thing. Have you read uh, the Acts of the Apostles lately? All of early Christianity is a battle with Judaism. What was left of Judaism? I, I brought this out. This is one of the reasons I wrote the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. The Jews were not then our friends, and they are not now our friends. And so what we are proposing here is the opposite of Judaism. It's not a Judaistic religion. It's the opposite of Judaism. The Jews are our enemies, and that's why we love them, because as Christians, Jesus Christ told us to love our enemies. But to pretend that they are our friends uh, is preposterous, or it's even, even more preposterous is to pretend that, Christianity, pretend that Christianity is nothing but a form of Judaism. If that's the case, why were all these, why was Saul persecuting Christians? Yes, uh, very good. Um, two of your comments, and I think one was a tweet that really um, irritated a lot of internet pagans and white nationalists. Uh, one was the comment that if someone moves from Africa and they adopt Polish customs and culture, over a certain period of time, they will become just as Polish as the people who were living there. Um, could you explain that a little bit further? Yes, yes. The, the, the main criterion of ethnicity is language, is logos. Uh, and so if you, uh, if you learn the Polish language, you will become a Pole. It's that simple. I mean, when you're living there, you have to eat pierogi and go wonky because you can't get any food from Africa anyway. So that's, that's what happens. I say this too because I did the same thing. I moved to Germany, uh, got a job there, and the professor, I learned the German language. And as soon as I learned the German language, I, I fit in with everyone else. And then they wanted me to stay there forever and become a teacher and get tenure and so on and so forth. So language is the main criterion. If you learn the language, then you're part of that you're part of the culture. Now, that being said, if you if you send 500 Somalis, 500 Somali boat people to a village in Ireland that has 100 inhabitants, is the same thing going to happen? No, of course not. You're overwhelming the local culture. And you're what you see that's an example of that actually happened in Ireland. Yes. And this is weaponized migration which has to be treated differently, okay? This, we, we, we know about weaponized migration because we experienced it in the United States before it ever happened in Europe. And I'm talking about the black migration from the Southern states to cities like uh, Philadelphia and Chicago and Detroit and Boston. Uh, and I cover the story in my book, The, the uh, Slaughter of Cities, Urban Renewal as Ethnic Cleansing. The other controversial statement that you had made was that without the Catholic Church, Europe would look like Africa does now. That's wrong. I didn't say that. Europe will never look like Africa. It will never look like Africa.
okay? They're two completely different continents. I said something, I think what I said was uh, the difference between uh, Africa and Europe is 1,000 years of Catholicism. And I stand by that statement. That is an absolutely true statement. And I say it because I was in uh, Tanzania. I ended up writing a biography of Julius Nyerere. Um, and in the course of that, uh, converse course of that, uh, I met a German who handed me a brochure about fair trade coffee. Uh, between, and the, agree the arrangement was between the Diocese of Mbinga in Tanzania and the Diocese of Würzburg in Germany. And so the, the open the folder and it says Diocese of Mbinga, founded in 1987. And then you go to the Diocese of Würzburg and it's founded, I believe, maybe I'm wrong, 740. Well, that's the difference. If it weren't for the Benedictines and the Catholic Church, the Germans would still be chasing pigs through the forest of Germany. That's what they did. They had no civil. They had uh, uh, no civilization. They were primitive people, uh, in spite of what all of these uh, these uh, pagans want to say. Okay, and I say that talking about my own ancestors. I'm half German. Okay, that is the difference, and that sparked outrage. Yes, uh, especially from Richard Spencer, <laughs> who was offended. I mean, what, what are you, Richard? Are you whiter than I am? Are you more German than I am? I'm more German than you are. So where do you get off telling me that this is outrageous? Um, I want to switch gears a little bit here. I, I know that um, you had a couple conversations with um, either Messianic Jews or uh, Talmudic Jewish scholars. Uh, one was with Dr. Michael Brown. Um, right. So it seems to be that you've come on the radar here and these figures here are trying to diffuse your arguments. Could you talk a little bit about uh, the arguments they made to try to uh, unwind your book, uh, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit? Yeah, uh, Brown uh, invited me on because we're gonna have a polite discussion. He, he's a dishonest man, okay? He takes your uh, words and they twist them. He manipulates the video and so on and so forth. Uh, I've already written about this. Okay, it's a it's a a, um, a book on uh, on you can get on Amazon Kindle describing the whole story. But anyway, it, it came down to basically a discussion here of one Thessalonians two. Uh, the um, the Jews are the people. Now, can you hold on for a second? I, I'm going to read you exactly what's it, what's in my Bible here. Okay, so that we avoid these type of uh, pointless discussions here. Um, one Thessalonians two. So, uh, for you, my brothers, have been like the churches of God in Christ Jesus, which are in Judea in suffering the same treatment from your own countrymen as they have suffered from the Jews. The people who put the Lord Jesus to death and the prophets too. And now they have been persecuting us and acting in a way that cannot please God and makes them the enemies of the whole human race. That's a direct quote from the Jerusalem Bible. Now, uh, Dr. Brown does not like uh, passages like this. And so he immediately starts off by saying, 
Well, this isn't talking about the Jews. It's talking about a group called the Judeans. Well, what does that mean? I said, well, wait a minute. First of all, it says Jew here. But secondly, uh, I know Greek. Uh, the, the Greek is hoiudeoi. That's always translated as the Jews. Okay, so we get into this big uh, argument, uh, which comes down to basically the fact that uh, Michael Brown he claims to be a Christian, but he's got Jewish privilege. And what does Jewish privilege mean? That means when it comes to even an interpretation of the scriptures, the New Testament, he trumps my interpretation. His, my, his interpretation is right and my interpretation is wrong. Well, this is not American. Okay, I mean, we, we have difference of opinion here about the scriptures. Uh, your interpretation, I gave you my reason why I think you're crazy to use the word Judean here, uh, but uh, at least we can agree to disagree, okay? Well, that's not the way he's gonna leave it because he's got an agenda here. And the agenda begins, okay, when he then goes on the internet and accuses me of being an anti-Semite because I don't agree with his interpretation of 1 Thessalonians 2. Well, now we're getting into the realm of outrageous behavior. This is simply outrageous behavior. Then he, he, he concocts a fudged video of me, uh, gives the illusion that I'm right there in the room with him. And it's a, it's a video of the, what we had before, which he's using. And he says, you have the last word. Well, no, I don't, I'm not there. <laughs> you can't ask a picture of me to, to respond to that. Okay, so this is completely dishonest, corrupt behavior. Uh, an agenda of someone, the behavior of someone who has an agenda, okay? So, all right, so you call me an anti-Semite. Worst thing you can say about someone. Two days later, there's a shooting in Poway, California. Okay, now the Jews are saying that uh, people like me are responsible for this shooting. Okay, uh, well, I prefaced every single video by saying, uh, on this topic, by saying no one has the right to harm the Jew. This is secret Judeus non. This is what I keep quoting. That's all forgotten here, okay? Brown is accusing me of being an anti-Semite. He's also saying there's no such thing as the term the Jews. Well, wait a minute, we just quoted this from 1 Thessalonians 2. He uses the term hoiudeoi. Dr. Brown uses the term hoiudeoi, or the Jews, whenever he wants to praise Jews, like saying the Jews uh, have more Nobel prizes than any other group in the world. It's fine to use the word the Jews then. As soon as you say the Jews killed Christ, well, no, you're an anti-Semite. So that's bad enough, okay? Then two days after the power shooting, Representative da Danny Danon shows up at the United Nations. He says, the time for discussion is over. We demand that you turn anti-Semitism into a crime. So now this is what this is why I'm saying you have to use the word the Jews, okay? Because what you have is a collaborative effort here that begins with Michael Brown calling you an anti-Semite and ends with Danny. I think it's uh, chutzpah, which is basically uh, the you you the the Jew has no sense of logos, okay? When that means. He's in rebellion against Logos, so he doesn't recognize limits. And that means he just pushes the situation farther and farther until he's stopped by an external force. This oftentimes leads to violence against uh, Jews, and that's the cause of it. 
So in this type of discussion, they get one thing and they just keep on asking and they keep pushing for more and more and more to the point now where they've alienated people all over the world and they're unaware of the fact of the real effect that they're having on people. They're kind of isolated. They're insulated from uh, normal discourse. They, they don't understand the effect that they're having. And as a result, they get into trouble. And I think that's the situation they're getting into right now. Um, maybe we'll just ask a, a couple more questions here. Um, th the first one is this. I mean, I, I've noticed that in the uh, alt-right and white nationalist community, there's a increasing rhetoric of violence. And I know that your uh, message has always one, been one of peace. And as you said a little bit earlier, that the Jewish community needs to be left alone. What do you think is the antidote for this violence online? Uh, discourse, uh, logos, speech, discussion. The people, uh, one of one of these uh, people, they uh, one of the guys wrote a manifesto, and he basically said, uh, "I've talking. The time for talking is over. I'm going to uh, get a gun." These are people who have been demonized. Uh, they have been deplatformed. They have been uh, uh, scorned, and as a result, they feel they have no other recourse than violence. Uh, when the power shooting took place, I pointed the finger at the ADL and I said, you're responsible for the violence. I'm not responsible. I'm the guy who goes on and tries to talk to everyone and talks about how secret Judeus non says no one has the right to harm the Jew. And what is your reaction? You demonize anybody whose speech you don't like as an anti-Semite and then you try to destroy them. You suppress the speech. Well, if you suppress the speech, you're increasing the violence. That's the cause of violence right now. People are totally atomized. They feel they're in a horrible situation. They feel there's no way out. And they, in the frustration, they pick up a gun and start shooting people. I know that you've uh, done political work and uh, different work in media with the black community in South Bend. Uh, you've traveled throughout Africa. India and other parts of the world. I mean, do you think it's possible for there to be political collaboration uh, among various ethnicities in the United States and in the wider world? Of course I do. That's why I'm writing this book on Logos. It, it's partially a, a function of the traveling that I've done. You've, you're right. I've been traveling all over the world, to Africa, Iran, India. And what you realize is that people all over the world speak English. Uh, which is good because we can talk to each other. But then the question is, well, what are we going to talk about? We need some type of philosophical foundation for our talk, for our discussions. And that's what Logos is. It is the basis of what we are as rational creatures. And the main manifestation of rationality is speech. And speech is supposed to lead to some type of rational collaboration among peoples. That's what we're that's what I'm trying to do. I know that a number of your uh, YouTube videos have been pulled down, and as you mentioned, there's increasing censorship. Um, what do you see the future of this censorship leading to? I know in the United States we have the First Amendment, uh, but over the past couple of years, there's been a number of mainstream articles arguing for its abolition or for some qualifier that hate speech is not acceptable. Yeah, yeah all the people in power don't like uh, free speech. It's that simple. Uh, 
this is, uh, and so you're talking about uh, one main group that doesn't like it is the Jews because they exercise total power over the media, over the discussion, uh, and uh, they have Jewish privilege and they don't want anyone to take this away from them. Well, uh, you can't uh, enforce this by, by violence. You can't enforce, because, uh, and what we're seeing now is that large segments of the population now are waking up to the fact that this is controlled media, that the discussion is controlled, and that uh, it's not in our interest to continue uh, pretending that it's, that it's a, a valid form of uh, discourse. Just yesterday, uh, we had this Charlie Kirk fella who calls himself a conservative uh, showing up at Ohio State University and uh, uh, people lining up afterwards and challenging him and he can't come up with an answer. And so he's, he, he and his uh, buddy brings on a, a, a black homosexual to help him out. And now what we're seeing here is that these two people are now lording it. They are our leaders. They are going to tell us what it means to be a conservative, which and, and this is the people in the audience were buying it for some strange reason. This is the demo demographic that he's supposed to control is the 18 to 24 year olds, and they're not buying it. Well, who, who appointed you our leader? Well, the answer to that is very simple. Big foundations, the DeVos Foundation, the Koch Brothers Foundation, uh, the Heritage Foundation, uh, Bernie Marcus and the uh, uh, Home Depot crowd. All these people, this is oligarchic money being cre creating a proxy warrior, a puppet, a little mouthpiece here to spout off conservative economics and nobody's buying it. So he has to bring in his gay buddy and turns out we're even less buying uh, sodomy. So you're peddling usury and your buddy's peddling sodomy and no one's buying. It's over. And there's no way you can put this toothpaste back in the tube because consciousness is there that wasn't there before. And as I'm saying in this book, Logos is rising. A couple last questions here. Um, I saw on Twitter that um, the Catholic journalist Don Eden Goldstein was criticizing Patrick Coffin for having you uh, on his show. Have you encountered uh, censorship or pushback uh, within Catholic media? Uh, you're talking about now? I'm, I, I was excommunicated from so many synagogues early on in my life, it's hard to tell which I, I should refer to. But let me talk about uh, Dawn Goldstein. This is a lady who came, claims to be a Catholic and engages in the most egregious Jewish behavior. <laughs> what do I mean by egregious Jewish behavior? This notion of taboo and uncleanliness. This is outrageous. This lady should be ashamed of herself and she should go to confession if she's considered herself a Catholic. Because what is she saying? That Pat Patrick Coffin contracted some type of ritual impurity by his contact with E. Michael Jones. Is this a way you talk about fellow Catholics? No. Shame on you. Shame on you, Don Goldstein. You should be ashamed of yourself and go to confession. This is not Catholic behavior. And, and maybe you should just keep your mouth shut for a while and find out what Catholic behavior is before you open it again. Um, a bigger question regard that kind of encompasses uh, all of these figures, Richard Spencer, Don Eden Goldstein, uh, Dr. Michael Brown. I mean, to what degree are these people 
agents or assets or are they useful idiots? I mean, to, to what degree uh, is there a conscious infiltration of these various groups? Well, I mean, they're all, it's all different. I don't know Don Goldstein at all. So I can't talk about there. That's, that's why it was so refreshing to be able to talk about Charlie Kirk because it's so obvious. It's so obvious. It's a 24 year old who came from nowhere, who doesn't know shit from Shinola when it comes to uh, economics. And now he's the mouthpiece for this generation. Well, that's easy to explain. It's, he's a coke sucker. He's a coke sucker. This is the word came into existence to describe Scott Walker, the governor of uh, Wisconsin, who took Koch brothers money uh, to crush unions and, 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 and increase his power in Wisconsin. Uh, so he's a Koch sucker who has allied himself with a cocksucker. And that's the new face of conservatism. It's Koch suckers and cocksuckers. Well, this isn't going to fly. This isn't going to fly. That's why it's so it's so refreshing. Thank you. Charlie for making this so obvious to us. It's so obvious. It blew up uh, in the room. And what happened here is uh, he blew up conservatism as well. <laughs> conservatism is a joke. And now we know uh, why everyone's laughing. I guess we'll have the uh, penultimate and then one final question. Um, so if the alt-right and white nationalists got their way and we th th there was some revolution in the United States and there was only people of European descent here, would this be a happy, flourishing country with no problems? No, of course not. But I mean, what, what do you think? What do you think this whole story was about? Let's go back to a book like the uh, that I wrote about the uh, uh, the slaughter of cities. Was it black people that drove uh, the Catholic ethnics out of Chicago? Well, yeah, but they were taking orders from the Ford Foundation. Yes. Philadelphia, the same way. Uh, Reverend Leon Sullivan is black, you know, black minister in North Philadelphia. So we focus on his blackness and we suddenly forget the fact that he's a pawn of the Ford Foundation. John J. McCloy was his mentor and controller. So there, he's white. He's really white. He grew up in North Philadelphia. So racial, the racial explanation explains nothing, nothing. So if it were a completely white ethno state, you'd still have people who are sinners, who are fighting for power over other white people with other white people. And it would make no difference whatsoever. The final question is, um, I know you don't have a crystal ball, um, but where do you see things heading in our country, both sort of spiritually and politically in the next couple of years? There is a spiritual revival going on among the uh, the millennials. I, 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 I get experiences of this every day. Uh, Logos is rising. That's the title of the book. That's what's happening. This is largely because of the power of God and no other reason. When things get really bad, uh, things start to get good again. When I, when I am strong, when I am weak, I am strong. That's what St. Paul said. And that's precisely what we're witnessing right now. The Catholic Church has never been weaker. And this is the moment where of the Catholic comeback. It's going to happen. It's happening right now. And why do I say that? Because their ideas have failed. 
their promotion of social engineering has failed. We all know the way it works. We all know the way proxy warriors work. We know what false flags are. That's what they have. Their, their, uh, their uh, operation is like one big battleship, or let's put it this way, one big aircraft carrier that is sailing into a world uh, full of missiles. That's what's happening. That's the military analogy of what's happening in terms of consciousness right now. Michael Jones, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, where can people go to support your work? Go to culturewars.com, uh, where we can establish secure channels of communication that cannot be threatened by the ADL when they deplatform people from YouTube. Culturewars.com. Dr. <coughs> Jones, thank you so much for coming on Saturday Night Trad, and I hope you have a blessed All Souls and All Saints Day. Thank you.